If you could turn with me please to Joshua chapter 9. We're continuing in the, the book of Joshua and chapter 9 and that's on page 223 in the smaller church Bibles and 342 in the, in the larger ones. The title for uh, our sermon this evening is the Gibeonite Deception. And uh, I'm sure we, as we, we live, as I'm sure you all know or recognise in a fallen world. That is a world which, the world in which we live, is in rebellion against its creator God. We are all sinners. And this is true of every inhabitant of this planet now and every inhabitant that there has been since the day that Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. That is with the exception, of course, of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, we see as we look through the Bible and also through history, not only God's forbearance, but also his forgiveness and his grace at work despite human cunning and failure. We're tempted when we first look um, at this passage to think, well, what's that got to do? What's this passage, this incident, what's it got to do with me in the 21st century? However, we see here in Joshua 9, God's dealing with two groups of people. The children of Abraham, Israel, and the pagan tribes of Canaan, who are under his judgment. God has by his sovereign will given the land of Canaan to his people. The problem is, there are many people already there. There are approximately, or there are about 31, what we would call city-states, or tribes, or clans. We've seen two of these already destroyed over the past weeks Jericho and Ai these inhabitants of Canaan are under God's divine judgment because of their cruel idolatry involving such practices as child sacrifice and cultic prostitution and before we become too self-righteous it's most probable that such things were going on in this country in Britain also, such practices were widespread. The Gibeonites were Hivites from the Hittite Empire who were known for their treaties and covenants where they would, as a larger nation, they would subjugate a smaller, weaker one, a little bit like the British Empire did and also many others, including Rome. As a child, and I was, for those who were younger, I was young once. And uh, as somebody was saying, I also had hair. But, um, but as a child, my parents used to tell me that I'd got a very vivid imagination. And it used to cause me a few problems. But that is, I like to picture situations in my mind. And so when I read the accounts of Israel travelling around 
in the desert for 40 years, being fed miraculously by God, now they, and now, they, after defeating the kings on the east of the Jordan, they have crossed the River Jordan, defeated and destroyed Jericho, and after a setback of their own making, defeated and destroyed Ai. Can you imagine the scene? Sometimes I think we, we, we have this tendency to just flip over, not actually take in the enormity or of what we're reading. We sometimes forget that this was a nation, not just a few people, not a tribe, not just a, a big family, but a nation on the march. Although scholars differ on the numbers involved, we're told that the vanguard or the the advance um, part of the army alone numbered 40,000. Can you imagine the scene as this multitude of people entered into the promised land? It must have been an awesome sight. If you turn to verses 1 and 2, we read, Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. Even without social media, 24-hour news and modern communications, the people of Canaan had heard about this mass of people who had left Egypt and had been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, fed by miraculous means, not by scavenging or looting, but fed by God. They'd heard of what had happened in Egypt all those years before and how the kings east of the Jordan had been destroyed. And now the same had happened to Jericho and Ai. It was obvious that these people had ceased what appeared to be an aimless wandering in the desert and now had turned their attention upon this land. A land described as flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty. Whether it was because they had heard of the defeat at Ai, that Israel had suffered at Ai after Achan's sin, that they believed if they could muster a large enough army together, they would be able to stop the advance of Israel or whether it was just sheer desperation or arrogance, we will never know. But they formed into an alliance to confront Joshua and the Israelites. Well, as we will see, most of them did. There was, however, an exception. The leaders of the Gibeonites heard about what had befallen Jericho and Ai, and because of their close proximity to Jericho and Ai, it was obvious that they would be next. They decided that George Orr was better than war war. They had realised that to resist the Lord's army was to face annihilation. They recognised that there was a power far greater than their army or their gods at work here. And we read in verses 3 to 6 the following. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. 
They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Now to begin with, we read that the Israelites were a little suspicious of this. In verse 7, we read, The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. So how can we make a treaty with you? The Israelites had been forbidden for making treaties or intermarrying with the inhabitants of Cana. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 4, we read, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. The tribes of the Canaanites were under divine judgment. There was no option for the Israelites to make treaties with these nations. Also, if they were to mix and intermarry with them, they would corrupt them with their idolatrous practices. And we see evidence of this happening later in the life of Israel, as you read through Kings and Chronicles. They are God's chosen people, called to be holy, set apart for God. They were told to show them no mercy, and probably the Gibeonites knew this. So, from their perspective, they had little choice. They stay and fight and be totally destroyed, leave the land where they were and become refugees, and risk being slaughtered by other tribes, or try to talk their way out of the situation by allowing themselves to become servants to the Israelites. They knew that this, if they asked straightforwardly, would not be accepted. So they decided to try a ruse, to deceive the Israelites. In the sinful world in which we live, deception is a necessity of war. We've seen it used over the centuries and still do so today. We saw the spies sent secretly into Jericho as an example. And we see if we read about David, how he used deception. And even more recently, is it not a deception when we smuggle Bibles into lands where they're not allowed? The first casualty of war is truth. The Gibeonites were also very persuasive. In verses 8 to 13, we read, We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. 
for we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and mouldy it is. And these wineskins that were filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and our sandals are worn out by the long journey. You wouldn't buy a second-hand car from a Gibeonite, would you? Now, just how plausible this Gibeonite story was, we don't know, or it doesn't seem it. We might, or we would have under, we would have picked up on it because we're much smarter. But anyway, it certainly fooled the Israelites. Whether it was the fact that these people appeared to praise God, appeared genuine, or whether it was because by the things that they said. It appealed to the ego of the Israelites when they said what God had done and how you've done this. They started to get a little bit puffed up, we don't know. But whatever it was, they were deceived. And here we have a warning. It's easy to be deceived, even as God's people. And as God's people, we are involved in a war. We're involved in many battles. Sometimes it's direct opposition that we see in many parts of the world. And even sometimes in our own, in our own country or even in our own families, in our own communities. But our adversary is cunning. He's very cunning and our nature is very deceitful. And so we must be on our guard if we're not to be deceived by the guiles of the evil one. He will use many ways to try to weaken and destroy the church. So often false teaching ideas and theories can and do sound very plausible. The temptation is to compromise because it's a lot less trouble than standing It was easier for Israel to agree than to have to fight again. So often we're looking to be accepted. Within us is that desire to be accepted in our society. Sometimes we latch on to any celebrity that makes some mention of God, sings a hymn or claims some form of spirituality and it gets sent round on Facebook. We're often pressured to join with those who are not faithful to the gospel, to join churches together or other such organisations and to compromise our stand on what we hold to be true for the sake of so-called unity. We can only have unity in the gospel. We will never have unity with the world and with false teachers. We can only have true unity in the gospel.
And just as we will see in this passage and we see in others, this can have serious and lasting consequences. To compromise can have serious and lasting consequences. The voices that say to us, does it really matter if we join in this activity or go there? The voices that say, does the Bible really say that? Or they say, is that what it actually means? Those voices remind us, don't they, of the serpent in the garden when he said to Eve, did God really say? So often we can be deceived because it sounds good to us. We have to remember that our human nature is flawed. Our human nature is in rebellion against God, just as the world in which we live is. It's imperative that we are vigilant in our dealings. If we move on to verses 14 and 15, we read, The Israelites sample their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. In verse 14, we're told where Israel Israel went wrong. Seems a very minor point. But it says, But they did not inquire of the Lord. They looked at the provisions, the mouldy bread, the dry bread, the cracked wineskins, the worn out sandals, the dirty clothes. They trusted and relied on their own understanding. And Proverbs reminds us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. This was not a minor issue. It was a major undertaking. The signing, if you like, of an international treaty. It was ratified by the leaders with an oath and they did not consult God but they swore an oath in his name. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need divine guidance in choosing, if you like, what colour shirt to wear. There's a danger sometimes that we can trivialise knowing and asking what God's will is. We need to know what God's will is for us. It's not a trivial matter. But neither should we neglect to seek his will for all aspects of our lives. Because, as we saw a few weeks ago, our individual actions can have an effect on others. The whole family or the community can be affected. We see it in the society around us where families are devastated because of somebody's addiction to drugs or alcohol. Where families are devastated because 
of crime, where families are devastated due to divorce. No man is an island. What I do today can have an effect on your tomorrow. We should be prepared to face opposition and scorn from those around us as we in good conscience follow what we know to be God's will for us. And God's will for us will never contradict his word and we should proceed with caution when we are making major decisions, especially when entering into any form of contract or undertaking, like marriage or business partnerships. We should also think carefully and prayerfully when contemplating any sort of an alliance, especially when our society is becoming increasingly more secular. For example, we may think it's a good idea to support those who oppose issues that we oppose, such as abortion or same-sex marriage. But if they are not Christians, or if they claim to be and would not be able or willing to accept our basis of faith, even when it may appear logical, it may, in the wisdom of the world, appear sensible, but if it is contrary to God's word, it is neither wise nor sensible. Israel were conned. Israel were conned into entering into a binding treaty. They didn't deliberately disobey, but they were guilty of carelessness. They were negligent in that they relied on their own understanding and didn't seek God's will. And this was at a time when God's will was made known to the people of Israel through the prophets or through the priests, or through Joshua. Was it their pride, their arrogance, or just plain stupidity that they neglected to do this? Was it because, well, it seemed so obvious to them? God now reveals his will to us in this day and age, through his word, by the Holy Spirit. However, the Gibeonite deception was soon discovered. In verses 16 to 18 we read, Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbours living near near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephra, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. It's easy to imagine, isn't it, that like always in life, there's always somebody who's very wise after the event. You can just imagine, can't you, in the camp. Huh, they got it wrong. They only live up the road. We knew. And as usual, the people grumbled. Now, if there's one thing the Israelites were good at, and there's one thing that we're good at, 
in fact, probably people in general are good at, it's grumbling. You know, if there was an award for grumbling, we'd probably all be up there in, you know, A-plus students, wouldn't we? In our society as a whole, the attitude very often is one of grumbling and discontent. It's always somebody else's fault, isn't it? It wasn't their fault, it was the fault of the leaders. It wasn't their fault, it was Joshua's fault. It was the Gibeonites' fault. Whatever it was, it wasn't their fault. Somebody should do something, shouldn't they? How often do you hear that? The government should do something about it. You know, the deacons should do something about it. And if that fails, the elders should do something about it. But if that fails, we take it to the FIEC. There's always somebody else. There is a lack in our society of the acceptance of responsibility for our actions. Now, whether it was because the Israelites felt cheated and humiliated, which they probably did, they'd been conned. And if anybody cons you or you make a mistake, we all know we feel pretty awkward about it and we can get very angry. Whether that was because they fell for the deception or was it because when they saw the city of Gibeon, were they cheated? Because they were cheated out of the spoils of war that would await them if they had destroyed and defeated the Gibeonites. Or was it that they feared God's judgment? For breaking the command not to enter into treaties with the people, we don't know. Whatever, Joshua now had a dilemma. On the one hand, he was tied into a treaty, and on the other, the people were in danger of revolting. And it has to be said that very often the Israelites were revolting. The leadership of Israel and Joshua's leadership was being undermined by this. So Joshua needed to resolve the situation. In reply to the grumbling, and we read in verses 19 to 27. I seem to have gone out of uh, uh, sync on that, don't I? Anyway. In verses 19 to 27, we read about the resolution. So instead of revolution, we get resolution. But all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, Let them live but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying we live a long long way from you, while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God 
had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. That is, of course, to the time, at the time of the writing of the, the book of Joshua. In these verses we see how the situation was resolved. We see three times, three times it's mentioned in verses 18, 19 and 20, the emphasis on the point that the oath could not be broken. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. But all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. And then in verse 20, this is what we will do. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. To break the oath would be to misuse God's name. And that is to blaspheme. That is blasphemy. Bringing dishonour on the name of the Lord and judgment on themselves. This even though they had obtained the treaty by deception. This again shows us the importance of, of due diligence when entering into contracts and agreements, especially with unbelievers. Whether we directly swear an oath using God's name or not, because we are God's people and all that we do is as unto the Lord. We are God's redeemed people and we do not leave him at the door of the solicitors, the boardroom, the workplace, the wedding altar, or the office of the registrar. We are reminded in Matthew 5, verses 33 to, to 37, the Lord Jesus speaking says again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfil to the Lord the oaths you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say simply, yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. The seriousness of making oaths and vows and promises is, um, or incidents appear through scripture and through in many places. If you read in, in Judges 11 verses 30 to 40, you will read the horrific account of Jephthah 
who was mentioned for his faith in Hebrews 11. And we see how serious the matter of vows, oaths and agreements are because there are consequences. We do not know the future. God is sovereign in all matters. So how can we sometimes swear things when we don't know what the future entails? And if you read Jephthah, you'll realise the mistake that was made. If you read in 1 Samuel 14, also you read of Saul making a similar sort of an oath and being put into a similar position. I know we live in a culture where, to put in the situation of Joshua, well, it would have been easy because we'd have said, that's it, agreement's void. They deceived us, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter anymore, they deceived us. Wipe them out, job done. That's the attitude of our society towards agreements and oaths and promises. We would be more interested in the legal argument than in the ethical position. We would be demanding our rights. It was their right. The problem is, is our approach to making promises or giving our word in the Western world in which we live, in the 21st century, is very lax. We very often make a vow or a promise that we believe should only bind us until perhaps we get a better offer. That was something that was rampant in the late 70s and the 80s with what was called gazumping where people would go along and say, oh yes, I like your house for whatever it was, probably about 20,000 in those days, seems ridiculous now, we'll buy it. And you say, very well, thank you. They would go away and somebody else would come and offer you 22,000 and you would break the agreement that you just made because all you'd done was shake hands. It was different in Scotland. But that's our attitude, isn't it? It's the attitude we see in the society around us. We see the same attitude, particularly in marriage. People get married and they make vows. Well, that is until somebody better comes along. Or perhaps the person that we made the vow to ages a bit quicker than we expected. Or isn't as exciting at the age of 50 as they were when they were 25. Marriage is a serious undertaking. It's one that is made in the presence of the assembly of God's people when we promise to stay together until death us do part, etc. And we're then encouraged to believe that our personal happiness overrules that promise. It's more important than the honour of God's name. And the truth is, we cannot know true happiness if we are dishonouring God. 
Israel had recently experienced the serious consequences of disobeying God. And the whole nation suffered for Achan's sin. So they realised that to do so again would incur judgement. They had got themselves into a quandary. What to do? They had neglected to take care in entering into an agreement by deceit. Should they now break that agreement? Well, two wrongs don't make a right, do they? So they were forced into making a compromise. Something less than an ideal position. And so often, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves easily putting ourselves into a compromised position. Whether it's sometimes accepting a favour from somebody and then they want one back. We have to be very careful. But the good news in this, and sometimes you look and think, can there be any good news? I found the going through this book of Joshua and when you start to read it, you think, oh, it's all about triumphalism. You know how God, and they went into the promised land and they took it. But as we've seen with Achan's sin, and now with this deception, it's a scary book. It's a scary book because it deals with real life. But the good news in this is that we see God's grace even in what might look like an impossible situation. We see that he didn't just leave Israel or the Gibeonites to get on with it. The Gibeonites had to live with the consequences of their deception. Israel invoked their commitment to be servants of Israel. However, they were not enslaved as other nations would have enslaved them. They were, in fact, blessed by the situation. They were to serve God by being the woodcutters and water carriers for the tabernacle. An arduous and menial task, but a very necessary one. They used a lot of wood in the sacrifices, and they also used a lot of water to clean up afterwards. So it was no easy task that they were given. They would not be able to continue with their pagan worship being within the community of God's people. One commentator describes them as being Abraham's foster children, living within the family of God's people and enjoying some of the benefits of that, but not being heirs to the promise of God's people. They were to be part of the worshipping and serving community, but they were not legitimate children of the promise. And they continued in this role for over a thousand years, benefiting from the protection that that brought. And we see that that protection took effect, or we will see, uh, in chapter 10. And we see how God keeps his word. We also see it over the generations, don't we, how God keeps his word. We read that, after, that 800 years after this incident, that when the Israelites returned from exile in Babylon, 
that 95 Gibeonites returned with them. And also in Nehemiah, that the men of Gibeon were involved in the rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The descendants of the Gibeonites were fully accepted within the community of Israel, although they weren't part of the people of Israel. Neither do we read any account of them intermarrying with the Israelites. And so, to finish, we see in this chapter, or in Joshua, up to yet, we have seen how people react to the pending judgment of God. The people in those lands knew, as the Gibeonites knew. They seemed to know as much about what God had said to the Israelites as the Israelites did. We see the reaction of the kings of Jericho and Ai and the others when faced with this army of God and they resisted. It's as if they shook their fists at God. They refused to bow the knee. They put their trust in their own abilities, locking themselves in their cities or or making war on God's people and in so doing reap terrible consequences of God's wrath. They were annihilated. The Gibeonites recognised that they were facing God's judgement. But they decided to use their own cunning to try and avoid the inevitable. And this ruse brought upon them a curse that they were to be woodcutters and water carriers to Israel. But even though this, through this grave opportunity, sorry, start again, but even through this, it gave them the opportunity by the grace of God to learn about the God of Abraham, to learn to trust and to obey him. And this is like, what they did was like trying to avoid God's judgment by doing good works. No matter how many works we do, we will never become heirs to the promise. We will never be legitimate children, part of the family of God, which comes by faith in Christ alone. In the earlier chapters, we read about Rahab, who was spared judgment because she believed God. And she threw herself on his mercy. And as a result, she was spared when Jericho fell. And we know that she was fully accepted into the people of God and became, she became heir to the promise. We read in Matthew 1, verse 5, that she is listed in the genealogy of Jesus, being the mother of Boaz. So where are you tonight? As we have been looking at Revelation in the morning and hearing of God's wrath, we will all have to face the judgment seat of Christ. Are you still refusing to bow the knee to Jesus? Are you ignoring that fact? that one day you will stand before him? Or are you just hoping that he will go away? Are you shaking your fist at God, as so many do in this day and age, mocking and denying his existence? Either way, you are resisting him. The king, just as the kings of Jericho and Ai did, with disastrous consequences. Or are we trying, like the Gibeonites, to earn our salvation by works 
and by our own merits. All this does is result in slavery. Slavery to works, but without ever being part of the family of God. Without ever being heirs to the promise. Or are we like Rahab, trusting in God's mercy alone, trusting only in what Christ has done for us upon the cross. The judgment we deserve has been taken on the cross by Jesus. Whatever the situation is, and whatever situation we might be in at the moment, perhaps through our many failings, and we are having to live with the consequences, perhaps, of our failings and our shortcomings, we're still assured that God's grace is sufficient in these situations. He can and will see us through them to the glory of his name. However, do not be deceived. If we are negligent or rebellious, we will have to live with those consequences. God's grace to us is not to be thought of as a get-out-of-jail card that we do as we please and then we just play the card and everything's fine and rosy and all our problems go away. Those of us who are much older know that that's true. But if we turn to him in repentance, we know that whatever befalls us, God's grace is sufficient. But we must remember the words of Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Write it on your hearts. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Shall we close by standing to sing?